Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Neil Sherry, COO of 67 Palmal, a stunning private members club for wine lovers in London. Coming up on today's show, Neil tells us the extremes he'll go to when learning. I spent probably two months, maybe a bit more, literally glued to Ian. Phil gets confused and thinks he's on the telly. So just for, I suppose for the record, for the, the viewers. And Nails calmly understates the severity of his predicament. They took my passport and they threw it on the floor. I thought, hmm, it's not going well. All that and so much more as Nails talks us through his story and journey to date, as well as some fantastic snippets of advice from an excellent career. Don't forget to give us a like and a share across your favourite social channels. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show someone who I've known on and off for, I'd say, about 10 years now. And I've got a story, actually, about how we met, which you may or may not remember, but we'll come on to that in a second. Delighted to welcome the COO of 67 Pall Mall, Neil Sherry. Thanks very much. Delighted to be on the call. And uh, hopefully we've got some interesting stories to, to share. Oh, I'll, I'll bet you have. I mean, you, you cover off one of my favourite topics, which is wine. So ah. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that at some point. So just for, I suppose, for the record, for the, the viewers, where in the world are you right now and, and kind of what have you got your, your head into? So um, having spent about six years with uh, 67 Pound Mile setting up the club in London uh, with Grant, the founder, we... About two and a half years ago, we did a strategy meeting with our board of directors. And one of the things that came out of that was that we need to take 67 pound mile around the world. So we conducted an exercise of places that we could possibly open. Uh, and the, the, the country uh, state that came uh, to the top of the list was uh, Singapore. So that's where I'm, I'm residing. So I'm sitting in my uh, office overlooking, uh, actually not my office, I'm at home overlooking Marina Bay Sands. So uh, uh, it's great to be in Singapore. It's an amazing, nice. amazing city. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I'm guessing as well that you, you, well, opening a club at the time of year that you were going to do has, has been presented with some, un, well, uh, unknown challenges that uh, at the beginning of the year, I suppose that's part of your strategy. You wouldn't have written in that you would be facing a pandemic in the uh, the, the first quarter and beyond. Yes, it's probably shared with millions of hospitality people around the world right now. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're, we're in a good position. We have an amazing location on uh, Scots Road and Orchard Road. It's right in the centre of, of town. It's a, a penthouse of a, uh, that belonged to the owner of the, the main building, the Shaw family, and that's been gutted and, and we're working on design. So all the sort of the, the work behind the scenes in terms of design, mechanical, electrical, all that stuff, that's just carrying on as normal. Uh, but certainly... Our original intention was to open the club in uh, September this year, in time for the Grand Prix. Right. I, I suspect we're, we're, we're delayed probably by about a year, so we need to be open for September next year. Wow. It's just there's, just, there's just so many other things that tie into it. So you've got membership acquisition going on, you've got the financing and finding shareholders going on, and literally when lockdown started, you know, the world came to an end on that front. So it's almost as if we have to start again which is yeah. interesting. But as I say, all the behind-the-scenes stuff is, is cracking on, so we're, we're in a good place there. Before lockdown, I was, I was hosting events every week in our office and uh, for about 80 people a week. We already have about 700 members for the club in Singapore. 
uh, right. with, a goal, with a goal to open with about 2,000. So that's very doable. We're, we're very excited. The, the um, Singapore is ready for £67,000. There's, there's no doubt about that. And the, the whole wine culture here is, is really progressing. Sometimes people say, why didn't we do um, Hong Kong first? And this was before sort of the issues and troubles had started on, in Hong Kong. So that wasn't really you know, on the agenda. Mm. But we looked at Hong Kong and we looked at Singapore and we just felt Singapore, we were getting in there at a slightly earlier stage than Hong Kong. Hong Kong is already a crowded market in the wine world and hospitality, whereas Singapore is, is on a journey. And so we're getting there a little earlier. And for us, that's more exciting, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned in the, the, the preamble at the beginning how we met. Can you remember that or, or shall I just regale you? Why don't you remind me? Yeah, <laughs> it was at a networking event run by um, EP. This is probably 2010 or, or, or 11, around about then. And I, I think at that point you were running your own company. And I always remember this. This has just stuck with me for, for the rest of time. I asked the typical question that you do at networking events is who are you and what do you do? And you, you told me the name of your company at the time. And I said, and what does that involve? And he said, well, basically, I help people with their drinking strategies. <laughs> and... Until that point, I'd never known that you could have a drinking strategy, and that's always stuck with me. I just think it's a it's a really you know you don't you didn't need thirty seconds of an elevator pitch. You just needed that one line. Yeah, it's it's um, you know the whole wine thing kind of happened by. I mean, of course, wine's always been a big part of my life, but being in hospitality, but the yeah. kind of getting into sort of the wine business more seriously was a uh, just a, an off chance. You know, meeting with a, a, a chap. That, I wanted to create a um, a private sommelier service called Salmon. And so I was one of the, the, I was the first person to be part of that. And we built that business up. And then, then the sort of the wine thing has kind of stayed with me along the way. It's a fascinating world and very enjoyable. And I particularly like what I'm doing at the moment, being in, in the world of clubs. And what I find quite refreshing is, and I love hotels to bits, and you'll hear probably a bit more about you know what I've been up to. But in hotels, generally speaking, your customers come and go albeit with a few regulars that you see more often. Yeah. But in a, in a club, you have a, a pretty permanent base of people that aren't going anywhere. And so you really do spend time investing, you know, getting to know them, getting to know their personalities, them getting to know you. You know, you share the sad moments, you share the, 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 the moments of joy. And it's just, it's just fascinating. And, you know, being a club that's, you know, circles around wine, we have a really interesting membership you know, of really high achievers and, and they've got interesting stories. And I find that, you know, particularly interesting uh, and one of the most rewarding parts of this current part of my career. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned stories there. I, I'm on board with that 100%. I just think the stories that people have to tell are one of the most interesting things that exist uh, in any kind of career that you, that you end up pursuing. So let's talk about your story. Ah. Take us all the way back. To the beginning of your career, you don't need to mention years or anything like that. But um, what was your what was your path? Did you did you study at university? Just just talk us through from the beginning. Okay, it's um, well, I've been in the, I've been working in the business for about uh, over thirty six years, so I've been around for a while. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I, I was listening to a podcast of um, David Caldry the other day. Yeah, um, I met David Caldry at the Ritz probably thirty five years ago, and we've known each other ever right. since. And I think that's an yeah. amazing part of our industry, by the way. I, I think it's, uh, uh, 
you know, the friendships we, we, we gain through both people that we meet in the business, but the people we work with is, is second to none. Um, and uh, in one of my little notes that I made, I, 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 I said somewhere that I, I wish that um, social media had been around 36 years ago. It would have been a lot easier to keep in touch with people. So sometimes now you, you might have lost touch with someone for 10 years and you just bump into them in another event. But when you start chatting, it's as if you had been speaking only yesterday. So I think that's just yeah. an amazing part of the industry. But to answer your question, two things happened that were kind of aligned when I was at, at, at school, finishing my, my uh, A-levels. Um, a, a chap called Richard Edmund, Edmonds, who was running, um, he was the secretary of Boodles. He was an old boy of the school and he came to give a career chat. So that was one big influence that I had. And then yep. a, a, a family friend uh was running one of the major hotels in london i just kind of saw the way he was living and, the, and what he was up to and there was something quite mysterious about it um and so that's when i i thought you know what i need to dip my toe into this and kind of find out a little bit about it um and so i did a little bit of holiday work in some small hotels and, and you know in, in, in school breaks and stuff and i kind of thought yeah this this is kind of I understand this. Then I thought, okay, what do I do? I'm going to, I'm going to leave school with A-levels. What's the next step? Um, so I interviewed with the Savoy group to be a Savoy uh, trainee, management trainee, a lady called Olive Barnett, and uh, I was offered a position to do so. Uh, at the same time, I also applied to Westminster College for Hotel School uh, in Vincent Square in London, uh, and I was also offered a, 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 an opportunity there. And I couldn't decide between the two. And in the end, I thought, you know what, I can probably do both. So I went to Westminster. I, I took an eight, uh, HND and I negotiated with the Savoy that after I finished my course, I would join Savoy as a postgraduate trainee. And so I was very lucky to, to be able to do that. And then when I was at, um, at Westminster in, in, in the various holiday breaks there, particularly the, the summer, I, I worked at the Ritz Hotel in London, where I met uh, uh, David Cowdery. Um, yeah. And that just gave me more insight. And I was, and I did all sorts of things. I was working in room service and restaurants and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, I was fascinated by it. I then left uh, the hotel school. I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was, that was not like education. It was almost like a, I, I sometimes I used to refer to it like a finishing school because it was just teaching you how to enjoy and do the finer things in, 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 in life. And I particularly remember, you know, uh, having gastronomy as one of my, my subjects and, you know, starting to do all the wine tastings, which obviously was a premonition of, thing, of things to come. Yeah. Um, but I, after I left Westminster, I, I bizarrely, and, and not related, but I, I worked at the Lancaster Hotel in Paris, which was part of the Savoy Group. The, the funny side of that was that when I, um, I went there, of course, with, a, with the idea in my mind that I would improve my French. However, being a hotel owned by an English company, everyone that worked there was English. <laughs> so uh, the, the the linguistic skills were were not developed too well, unfortunately. Yeah. So then I came um, came back from the Lancaster and I, I joined Savoy. Uh, at the time, it was being run by Willie Bauer, infamous Willie Bauer. Yeah. And I started first job there was working in the American bar with two great barmen. One guy called Vic Gower and another guy called Peter Dorelli, uh, who's had a very interesting career. And then from there, I. Uh, went to the cashier's department and eventually ended up on the on the front desk and I worked my way up from being a very 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 junior receptionist and at the end of my time at the Savoy I was the assistant front of house manager uh, so really looking after the day-to-day -day running of the front office and 
being a duty manager. And that was incredible. I mean, you, you know, one of the things I talk about later is just, you know, the people you meet. And my gosh, was the Savoy, you know, it, I mean, every day you'd meet someone famous. Or, you know, it was just incredible, incredible. I mean, all the politicians, you know, you'd get a phone call in the evening, you know, from Clarence House saying the Queen Mother wants to pop into the, the grill to have a bite to eat, you know, and, you, you, know, you'd, oh, yeah. you know, she'd pop along. And what was bizarre, you couldn't make this up, you know, she'd come into the hotel and she'd wander around the lobby and she'd just talk to the guests. Right. Yeah, it was, you know, can you imagine being an American, you know, standing in the lobby of the hotel and suddenly the Queen Mother comes up to you and says hello. It was very, you know, fascinating. Yeah, times. very cool. Yeah. So the Savoy was a, a, a an important part of my career. I, I don't think the Savoy taught me about finance or any of that sort of stuff in, 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 in the hotel world, but it certainly taught me about hospitality and looking after people. So that's my, my big takeaway, you know, from there. Yeah. And then... Um, uh, Peter Crome, uh, who's a great friend of mine, was the hotel manager of the Savoy, and he moved up to the St. Andrews Old Course to reopen that after a huge refurbishment. And he asked me to go up there as um, uh, the front of house manager there. And so I, you know, I had a bigger department, more responsibility, and it was kind of a, it was a, it was, a, it was an interesting move. And it was getting out of London and a sort of different type of hotel. And I, I am a believer that you know, in one's career, you should have variety of the people, the places that you work. Because they each bring something different to the table, and you, you take have different takeaways from them. Yeah. And, and St Andrews was a so it was half leisure, I suppose, uh, with the golf uh, being massively important. But it was also quite a big conference hotel, especially in in, in the winter. And uh, the hotel was kind of a sister relationship to Intercontinental Hotels at the time. It had the same owners, uh, but they wanted it to to sort of run as a as a separate entity. And in fact, it was it was Rosewood's first hotel in the United Kingdom. Uh, they were the, the managing party. Was yeah. it really? Yeah, not a lot of people. I didn't. That. I didn't know that. <laughs> so uh, that was uh, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So I was there. Yeah, up in St Andrews for a few years. You know, great, great place. And then, you know, it's also I had to get back into the smoke. I had to get back into into London or or a big city to really, you know, be working in in hotels that were doing eighty five percent occupancy and were kind of machines and and you know. And I so I joined. What was Sheraton Hotels at the time, but then became Starwood Hotels. And I, I started at the um, Park Tower in Knightsbridge, uh, working with Derek Pico, another infamous hotelier. And um, started off as the front office manager there, became the executive assistant. And eventually, I, I ran the hotel as hotel manager. We had a central GM, which was Michael Whale at the time. And I ran the hotel. And Starwood kind of brought me the, the things that, Savoy didn't. So Starwood was all about structure, financials, you know, really, really organized. And and I was there for about five years, you know, and, and, and loved it. Um, again, massively important part of my, uh, my my career. But then it was time for a change. Uh, I, I got approached to go and work for a guy called Ian Schrager. And, yeah, uh, nobody's heard of him. No one's heard of him. <laughs> and it was, it was bizarre. I got, I, a friend of mine, it was a chap called Ian Nicholson, uh, who gains quite a uh, known hotelier uh, based in the States now called me uh, and told me about the opportunity. And actually the opportunity was to actually was to be the GM of Sanderson Hotel, which was the second hotel opening. But I was to be brought on board to be go through the process of the opening St. Martin's Lane, then learn from that so I could then, you know, benefit from the hindsight of that when, when we did uh, Sanderson. Yeah. So I got involved with uh, uh, St. Martin's Lane. Amazing. I met, I met Ian Schrager. 
you know, what, what those hotels were doing back in 1999 was groundbreaking. There was nothing like it. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, Ian, you know, I had to, when I first heard of Ian Schrager, I had to go and Google him, find out about him and, and, and do all that sort of stuff. And I was really encouraged by friends to make a jump because it was a, it was going from two very different organizations. Ian Schrager Hotels at the time, I don't know, I, it was a bit disorganized. They were great. They made loads of money. There wasn't a massive amount of structure. The branding was Ian, uh, and nothing was really documented on that front, which, which later changed to, to a great extent. Mm. Um, but what was interesting, so about, and, and as St. Martin's Lane was about to open, I, I saw various bits of recruitment, various things going on. I thought, oh, I'm glad I'm going to Sarnison because, you know, this, there's, there's going to be some tough issues here. About two weeks later, Ian changed his mind and asked me to run uh, St. Martin's Lane Hotel. And it was, it was a blast. I mean, I, I remember when those doors first opened, that you needed crowd control. There were so many people trying to get into that hotel to see it. The wow. press coverage, you'd never seen anything like it. I mean, every magazine glossy magazine didn't just have like, like a little couple of inches of column news on it they had six page spreads with all the great photography i mean it was it was it was amazing and the hotel was full from day one there was no uh, right. there was no ramp up period yeah you know, we all talked about yeah. well you know you go for the first couple of months that you know 30 percent it was full from, from day one and incredible um, it was incredible and i i was just going to say is it fair to say that it, it was kind of probably led the way on on something which is now uh, you know it, it kind of ten a penny but luxury lifestyle was it was one of the first well certainly Ian Schrager's uh, portfolio was was one of the first to kind of lead the way on that yeah I mean you had Olivia uh, um sorry Anuska Hempel doing doing her thing I think she was um, yeah very ahead of her at the time uh so I think that was that was pretty cool but no I mean Ian didn't compromise one bit about bringing the brand and the concept from from the States over to the UK. I mean, I, I can remember we even used to have to answer the telephones at Switchboard, happy holidays at, at um, you know, Christmas time. <laughs> and, and people used to phone us up just to hear us say happy holidays because no one, no one, <laughs> no one was, 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 was doing that. Uh, and um, But no, that was, I uh, I loved that hotel. And, and um, I, I obviously I then went on to run Sanderson, but when I, then I went to the States, but I come, ba- come back to that. But, you know, we changed the way that we recruited people as well. We, we recruited, you know, a team, you know, based on character and, and not necessarily on qualifications. And and I remember there was one lady on on reception who used to get so many fabulous comments from from um, guests and nice notes written in. And one day I I went up to her and I said, you know, what's what's your magic? You know, what are you doing that that makes these people so happy? And, and she turned around. I'll never forget it. She turned around to me and she said, you know what? It's because I can just be me. And for me, that was like the perfect piece of recruitment where this person was able to do what she was doing effortlessly, you know, not having to be subservient, just being her natural, you know, effervescent self. Uh, and people yeah. loved it. Uh, and, and that was something that, you know, the hotels were, were good at. You know, I used to, I've quoted this before, but, you know, the brand enabled people to be themselves and people have permission to be themselves. And I, all our bellmen at, at St. Martin's Day and Sanderson were all actors and models and all that sort of stuff. And I, I'm going to use an odd expression here, but, you know, one of them went on to be the face of uh, Calvin Klein. You know, unfortunately, he wasn't the face. He was the underpants guy. But uh, his, his, <laughs> his, his uh, lower regions were billboarded around, around the world, which, is, which was quite, kind of funny. But I used to tell the bellman, uh, it's a true story, I used to tell the bellman that... Um, you have my permission to do cartwheels in the lobby. 
And and um, they looked at me and I, and I said, you have my permission. If you want to do a cartwheel in the lobby, you have my consent. I said, look after the guests, look after everything that you have to do. But when one of your colleague comes on duty and, and, and you want to give him a big hug uh, because he's a friend, that's okay. Uh, and it, yeah. what, what it did was the whole, this whole way of how we treated the staff and how they reacted, it gave the guests who stayed at the hotel, the guests that came and dined at the hotel to behave in a certain way as well. It gave them permission to be relaxed and, and to, to really enjoy themselves. And, and I think, you know, one of an interesting statistic was our something like 80% of our weekend business, people staying overnight, came from within the 10 mile radius of the hotel. hotel. Really? Wow. Yeah. So it's, it, it wasn't people that needed a, a room for the night, you know, in terms of they needed somewhere to stay. They were checking into the hotel to immerse themselves in this experience yeah. that, that Ian created. And, and um, you know, I spent, I spent probably two months, maybe a bit more, literally glued to Ian, you know, and, and um, I, I basically learned how to run the hotel through osmosis right. from him. And, uh, He's a, that, a proper visionary in a sense. I mean, to, to come up, this is, it's bold hospitality for its time. Nowadays, you know, as everybody creates experience, I think, and and that's what ultimate hospitality is is trying to achieve is is that mix of experience and you know delivering the actual hospitality service slash product or or whatever. But for for that time, that that to me seems like he was he was ahead of his time. Oh, massively, massively. I mean, even things like restaurant concepts. You know, we, you know, Asia de Cuba. I think it's just recently um, uh, closed. And but you know, that's Asia de Cuba has been going pretty much since 1999. And, and yeah. um, you know, I remember Ian used to say, you know, don't market the restaurant to the uh, to the guests in the hotel. That's the last people you want to market to. You market to your local area. You market as if it's a standalone restaurant, and um, it worked. You know, our bars were massively busy. I mean, the bar at Sanderson. My gosh, <laughs> that used to be, you know, amazing. So, yeah. so you know, he had something that worked uh, and, um, you know, he, he is. I mean, I remember, you know, walking down the street with him in, in Miami, you know, in South Beach, and people would stop and, and congratulate him, you know, on the Delano because right. that hotel changed to South Beach. South Beach was a dive uh, before that hotel was kind of reopened and redeveloped, and that was, that was down to Ian, you know. So, uh, yeah. no, I mean, a, a very, very clever man. Very calculated man. So, um, and you know, and to be working alongside him for, for a good number of years is is uh, interesting. I tell you, the interesting fact when I um, that so I'd given in my my notice to um, to Starwood Hotels to go and work for Ian, and about two weeks before um, uh, I, I was due to start, someone phoned me up and they said, you know what, Niels, you need to know this. He said, no general manager has ever survived an opening with Ian Schrager. <laughs> oh, God, you know. But I had I had a um, something you know in my back pocket which I was always very grateful for and it's and it's and again it comes to one of my points I made in some, some notes earlier and one of the things that I've, I've I've made a note on I said you know in our business it's some you must never close the door you must never shut the door on anyone that you've ever worked with or that door must always be remain open mm. uh, and a good example of that was um, after I handed in my my resignation to Starwood Hotels. I got a phone call from uh, Bob Cotter, who was the uh, area president of Starwood Hotels. And he called me up personally. And he said to me, he said, Niels, if things don't work out at uh, Ian Schrager, the door is wide open for you. You're welcome to come back at any time. 
And that was something really nice and, and really, you know, reassuring that, you know, I was, it was a gamble to go and work, to work for Ian. But uh, when you know someone, you know, it's going to have you back. I, I, I just, that, that's a, um, I'll come on to that point later, why that, why I had that relationship with Bob Cotter, but it was, um, that was important. Well, that's the, um, the old adage of it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? But then it's how you look after who you know as well on top of that. Yeah, and you have to earn it. But, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm skirting around a bit here, but I remember, you know, when I worked for Starwood Hotels and, 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 and um, worked for Michael Whale, you know, Michael Whale was always, we, we used to go to Brussels a lot where our corporate office was. And if there was any initiative that the hotel needed doing, that the, the company, that the European division needed doing, Michael would always volunteer London to get on with it. And, and so any right. project that came along, you know, which was extra work, but we always did the projects. Uh, and because of it, we had much more visibility in, in front of the, uh, the European team of, uh, of, of Sheraton and, and Starwood Hotels. And so, you know, so Bob kind of knew who I was, you know, and I always, always made that whenever he came to stay in London, you know, day or night, whatever time he was arriving, I'd be there. Uh, whatever day of the week, you know, I'd be there to meet him. Yeah. Because that's how you build those relationships. You know, very, very same with Ian Schrager. When Ian used to come into, into London from the States, any time of day, day of the week, time, whatever, I, I would make sure I was, I was there. So, uh, and those, those, yeah. come, those things come back to, to kind of reward you to a certain extent. And then, um, sorry, I'm probably waffling on too much here, but then I, um, no, no, not at all. was asked to, to look after Sanderson uh, Hotel as well. Uh, so I became the regional vice president and I had a basically a hotel manager in each hotel uh, and um, I, I ran both. And I have to say the first few months was kind of interesting because you could guarantee that I'd be in the wrong hotel at the wrong time, depending where I was having a meeting. <laughs> uh, I could time the, the, the walk stroke, brisk walk between the two hotels. It was 12 minutes exactly between right. the hotels. You know, so, so that, that was interesting. It's a learning, you know, when suddenly you've got two properties, you've got 600... 50 staff working, you know, team working with you, you know, it's, it's another challenge uh, and gratefully received. It was, um, yeah. you know, very enjoyable. Uh, and, um, and when I um, got to Sarnison, the, the company was getting bigger and bigger. And one of the issues that we had as a business was that Ian was the brand book. It, it was the brand book was walking on two legs and nothing was really documented. And so we had some great HR people come on board in the corporate office I remember flying over to New York and, and Ian had assembled sort of, you know, the sort of the key people in the company, I suppose. And Ian sat down at a, a, at a desk in, in front of probably about 30 people and he had all his journals in front of him. And he basically went through his life. My from, God. You know, when, when he, and, 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 and talked about all the stories and why he created the hotels and what they meant to him. And, and this was, you know, all recorded. And then that went on to then be analysed and, and, and put into a brand. A, a, a brand book and so that we uh, because what happened was you know if a general manager left a hotel then you know the brand and a new person started and that person hadn't met Ian then that brand got diluted slightly because it was being handed yeah. over by a third party and if that happened a few times it just kept getting diluted and diluted so we needed a process to to um, deal with that and, and, and that was done and, and um, the fun part of that journey was that um Ian took about six of us all around the world to his hotels, sometimes in his private jet, which is kind of fun. Um, and and Ian, yeah. Ian would sit you know, in a bedroom at Morgan's Hotel, which was his first hotel, 
and just tell the story of why that hotel is, you know, and how it came to be and, and all, all references to it. And so that was, you know, incredibly, incredibly privileged to be part of that process. Um, and then from Sanderson, then Ian asked me to move to the States, which was interesting. And I remember going home to my wife, Nikki, and saying, Ian's asked me to go to New York. And, and I turned around and I said, I think we need to do this. And I, mm. the reason I, I, I did it, at the same sort of age, my father moved us from um, the UK to Australia in 1967. And so I grew up in Australia as a young, young kid. And, uh, you know, I thought, if my dad can do that, then I can do it and, uh, with our kids. So we made the move. And I was the vice president of operations. And I was referred to as the outside guy. I was the guy, uh, there was two of us. And there was one, another guy who was the inside guy, and I was the outside guy. So I was the guy that was out <laughs> in the operations, you know, going around the hotels, doing all the financial reviews, working with all the general managers, and making sure the brand was, was being, you know, held and looked after. You know, getting involved with you know new openings and, and, and things, and so um, yeah, that was a fascinating part of my life. And, and um, you know, then the, the the world unfortunately came to a bit of a, a financial crisis in two thousand and seven. The company was restructured, yeah. so I came back back to the UK. And uh, but yeah, uh, you know, an incredibly important part of my life, I have to say, very fond. Um, then I've worked briefly. Should I say that briefly for Devere Hotel for Devere Deluxe? As chief operating officer, and that was to kind of reposition their sort of 10 best hotels. We had um, Cameron House at Loch Lomond was probably our flagship, and that's how they were all going to be. Yeah. It was a relationship that wasn't to be. I should leave it, leave it at that. They, they happen every now and yeah. again. Well, it does happen. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's just a, a, a probably a coming together of two very different ideas and views. You know, I suppose culturally that's that plays a big part as well but you know i think in every single career that you come across you find one that just you know it just didn't work yeah so anyway so but um but bizarrely richard balfour lynn and i are now quite chummy which is really really ridiculous right but he's uh he's a you know uh someone that we he has a, a massive winery hushy so we know him well you know so um yeah things have moved on then i got involved with a company that i touched on it briefly called salmon yeah Salmon was a, a wine business, and the, the chap, Bertrand Faubourg, who was the uh, founder, he wanted a hotelier uh, to run his business very specifically, uh, although it wasn't a hotel business. And Salmon was a, sort of a luxury you know, wine business that, that did curate, look after people's wine uh, and other, other things. Uh, and um, an interesting business. We had an office in, in Hong Kong. Uh, I was the managing director. I looked after both, both businesses. Um, uh, eventually, the business moved to China, and uh, Bertrand asked me to go to China, and I, I, I didn't want to do that, so I kind of declined that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but that again was a again fascinating. Uh, what I, you know, what I liked with Ian Schrager, entrepreneurial. You know, what I liked about working with Salmon, really entrepreneurial, and, and you just in those sort of environments, you do things so differently, and, and you can, as an American expression, you know, you can turn on a dime. You know, uh, uh, and you can change your mind, and, and it's just—it's—it's it's just very. I don't know I, I find it very fulfilling. So that was kind of someone. Yeah. So, so then we parted company because they were going to China, and and, and someone actually prospered quite nicely, uh, and um, has recently been sold, uh, and is now owned by a large luxury uh, a, a business, um, but very well respected, amazing business. I then um, probably when you met me, I uh, set up the the Sherry Wine Company. And so 
uh, I was basically continuing to kind of work in the same vein as Samo. And, uh, and that business actually continued for many, many years. Only recently I stopped doing it because I just didn't have the focus on it. Again, you know, setting up your own business is challenging and interesting uh, and, again, very rewarding. Yeah, but not necessarily financially rewarding. So I kind of needed to do something else as well. Mm. So then I got back into the hotel business and I joined uh, GLH Hotels as the general manager of the Royal Horse Guards Hotel and One Whitehall Place, which is a sort of an events business. And uh, you know, worked through that and, and got that you know hotel. You know, we, it was financially very very successful. And after doing that for about a year and a half. Uh, I was then asked to go to the um, corporate office to work on a, a new project, which was called Claremont Hotels. Yeah. And the idea was that uh, we were taking five of the best hotels in the company uh, and going to rebrand them. Uh, Horse Guards was going to be one of those, and it was going to, you know, be rebranded, and it was going to, you know, have a huge cash injection and, uh, you know, reinvent itself. That was all going very, very well. But I could see, uh, and with the owner, I could see that. Um, there was an inkling that the project may not go ahead. I could see that coming, so so I thought, you right. know what, I'm going to uh, I'm going to bail out here, uh, and so I started looking for a, a new role. And then the next part of my life uh, started, which is my current current life, which was 67 pound out. And what an amazing journey! It's been about six years. I remember meeting Grant Ashton, who's the, the, the founder and, and, and CEO. He's a, a banker, Barclays Capital, Solomon Brothers, all that world. So not a hospitality guy. And he needed someone that had the hospitality background. And we, uh, we met. We got on incredibly well. And uh, at this time, we'd secured the location, 67 pound yeah. uh, But it was a shell. There was nothing. Nothing had been done. Nothing had been designed. A certain amount of planning had happened. But that was it. And I was in about a year and a half, maybe a bit, 20 months before we were due to open. So I was there really early and I, I can still picture it. So you, the main room downstairs is the old banking hall of Hamrose Bank and uh, it was stripped out, it was gutted. And all Grant, Grant and I had a trestle table, two chairs. <laughs> we had a, an electric fan heater to keep us warm. We had uh, two laptops and we were too cheap to, to have our own internet signal. So we, HSBC Bank was next door. And we figured out that if we took our laptop to the wall and, and logged on, we could actually use their public signal. <laughs> and, and so and it was a bit by the time we got to the trestle table, it was uh, the, the signal was a little weak. But right. that's what it was. Uh, and we sat down and we got our designing team together. We designed it. You know, we, 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 we built it. And there was nothing that Grant and I wouldn't do, you know. And that's what the, the joy when, you, when you're in a business and there's just two of you in a business you have to clean the toilet, you clean the toilet, you know, yeah. whatever you do. And, and that's been, you know, an amazing journey and, uh, you know, an amazing membership, amazing people, a, a team. Again, I'm touching on notes I made earlier, a, a management team that's still the same team that we opened up with pretty much. Uh, and that's, that's nowadays, that's incredible. A little trickier further down the, the line you go, but certainly. And, and when you have a club, keeping your, your key people there is, is perhaps even more critical than a hotel because that's the, that's the people that the members know. They get to know yeah. your team personally. They, they, they'll go out to dinner with our, our, our team. They'll invite our team to their houses. You know, it's a very different type of relationship. And, 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 and so you need, you need that stability of your, your team. But again, I, I took a lot of 
well, I suppose I took experiences from all the businesses I've been in. You, you know, I brought the structure of, of Starwood Hotels to the business. I brought the, the kind of the, the, the sort of the, the style of, of, of the team and, and, and how easygoing we are from, from Schrager. You know, so you kind of bring, you draw on all your experiences, you know, and, and uh, we, we definitely created something quite special. The members love it. I mean, it, it's just quite incredible. Yeah. Uh, and so very, very, very proud of that. And then I kind of touched on it earlier, but we then decided to open some more clubs. And it was logical for, for me to be the person that, that kind of spearheads that. Grant, my colleague, is sort of the front guy. So he goes out and he'll kind of do some of the financial deals. And But we came out to Singapore. We found the site. We loved it. It was, a, it was actually a site that was recommended by one of our members. And, um, yeah, the, the, the story continues. So uh, hopefully yeah. open, um, open going to be delayed because of the virus issue. Yeah. Hopefully we would like, we hope to be open in September this year, but I think it will be probably September next year. The good side of that is that we will be even more prepared uh, and all of the design, all the background stuff is is all in a really good place. Yeah. And my gosh, it's so much easier to open a second club. I bet, <laughs> yeah. The first one you do, there's no, there's no rule book. You know, there's nothing. You don't, you know, you don't even know if it's going to work to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you, you make decisions on the best information you have at hand, but opening the second club, you've got so much more information to, to pull on and you, you build on the mistakes that you made on the first club. You know, obviously with all things, there's plenty of those and you, and you build on the good side as well. So, uh, we're very excited. The, um, you know, we, we, we agreed with our board that we would probably open 10 clubs over the next 10 years. Wow. It's probably going to be a little bit slow, slower than that, but you know, yeah, we've, sure. got couple, we've got a, we've got a couple of cities in China on the horizon. We've got Melbourne, Australia on the horizon. Um, we've got Bordeaux in France on the horizon, slightly different model there because it's a, a smaller place. Um, so yeah, the, the future is very bright. There's, there's lots of interesting things go, going on, and I'm, you know, how lucky am I to be paid to be in Singapore to open up a club? I think it's, I kind of again another note that I touched on. I can't remember it's one of a couple of pointers, but one of the things about the hospitality business, and, and as you, you kind of mentioned earlier, it's, it's it's such a varied business. There's so many things that you know routes you can take. But you know, I don't know how many countries I've been to, but I've been all around the world. China, Russia, the States, India, you name it, all on business unit trips for, for, for the companies I've worked for. And, um, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool part of the hospitality world. Absolutely. You know, so um, I think that's something, I, I, you know, a really fond takeaway I have for it. But, uh, yeah, plenty more going on in terms of clubs. I'm, I'm literally a one-man band over here at the moment in Singapore. So, so you're uh, back to cleaning uh, toilets. I'm, yeah, not quite. <laughs> I'm <laughs> happy to do so. But no, but you're, you're actually, you're right. Because there is, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, today I had a conversation with our bank about setting up a gyro account, which is the equivalent direct debit. I've never had to do that before. There's always right. been, you yeah. find that, you know, and so you, you get to do that stuff or you go and open a bank account. And, and you know, so I, I, you're still learning. Yeah. Even after 36 years, you're still learning. And, um, you know, and that's, that's enjoyable. And so, you know, I know we'll open an amazing club in, in, here in Singapore and the, the team that we put together to, to build it and to run it will do us proud and, and you'll w- walk away and do the next club thinking, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's another achievement. So, um, and, and more to come on that. So that's kind of from yeah. what I've been up to uh, over, over the yeah. years. Uh, um, I, I think I've been quite lucky and I, and I like 
the variety of what I've been able to do, to be to get up to. I think that the some people are very comfortable being in the same business for thirty years, and that's that's credit to them, and that's that's what works for them. Yeah. I, I've I've enjoyed the variety and the different learnings from different styles of business I've been involved in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose that the variety in in some ways is kind of well, it's led you here, right, to to where you are now, and and you're now an, an amalgamation of all of those experiences. You know, make you the perfect person to be leading this type of business. I mean, you know, you're you're a hospitality guy through and through. Clearly, you're passionate about wine. You know, and now you're leading a hospitality business that has a massive focus on wine. It's just it feels like it's meant to be. It's interesting, though, because everybody thinks I'm a wine expert, and I'm not. <laughs> so, right. Uh, we've, got people, we've got plenty of people who work with us who, um, you know, I've got out here in Singapore, I've got Richard Hemming, who's a master of wine, working uh, working with us. You know, he's an amazing guy. We've got, uh, you know, an amazing wine team, Ronan Saburn, who heads up our wine team in, in London. You know, he, he's the kind of, I, I refer to him as like the godfather of the wine world. You know, everybody knows him. He's incredibly yeah. well-respected. And, um, you know, I, and I suppose, you know, working with Grant, you know, I kind of touched on it, but he will challenge the status quo. You know, I'll give you an example. So once lockdown started, we wanted to make sure we kept in touch with our members, kept them engaged. So we started doing um, virtual wine tastings out of London. And we just got written up um, uh, last week as being sort of kind of the go-to space to do virtual wine tears. So someone said that we owned that, that arena. Yeah. Uh, and that that's down to grants. And and to give an example, so we in, in, we can't do this in Singapore, unfortunately. But in in London, you know, we're sending out wine samples to members who are participating in in um, in wine tastings. But Grant being Grant, so he doesn't have to just pour wine into some smaller bottles and send it out. He creates a uh, like in a you know when you you look at an operating theatre and they've got those uh, oxygen free or germ free operating tents where people stick their gloves in there and they kind of operate without any germs getting there. Yeah, yeah. Grant, kind of, Grant created that for, for decanting wine in London. So he's got this kind of oxygen tent type kind of fish tank thing that's filled with argon gas, which is a non-oxygen environment, and uh, decants the wine. So no oxygen ever, it's an inert gas, so no oxygen ever uh, gets in contact with the wine, which is really right. brilliant. Um, yeah. uh, and so that, that wine gets shipped out. It's, it's insulated. We put temperature recording patches on the wine, so we know the temperatures it's been exposed ex- exposed to. We're now experimenting with uh, dry ice to see whether we can send it further distances. And it's just you know, I think we've done something like two hundred and fifty, three hundred virtual tastings, uh, and, right. and they're being applauded. And, and it's by the, some of the greatest you know winemakers in the world. It's just exceptional. So whatever we do as a business, we do it. Grant has this kind of go go large or go home, you know, do it properly. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice to be in that environment. It's nice to be in an environment where you say, you know what, okay, we need to spend an extra fifty thousand pounds doing this, but let's do it because it's going to be worth it. You know, and, and I've, I, I've, I've, some of the business I've been in, you know, scraping every penny out of the business to get something done has sometimes been really hard. In an entrepreneurial business, you the people around the table make a decision and get on with it, which is you know something I, I enjoy a lot. But the wine thing is, um, whenever I go to a restaurant, I always get handed the wine list. <laughs> so so you, uh, I have to kind of combat that. So I, I, I'm not a wine expert, but we have an amazing team of people. We've got 17 sommeliers in London. Uh, so it's, it's yeah. a strong team. You know, we have, I think uh, at, at last count, we've got 6,000 uh, wines in our wine list. We've got about 800 wines by the glass. You know, it, it's it's really quite special. Um, yeah, it, so. it really is. 
I was lucky enough to have a, a couple of hours there one evening. It was uh, to, to catch up with one of your team members, actually, who I know, uh, Mark Watts. Oh, yeah. And he very kindly gave me a tour, and and then he left me at the bar to, to kind of chew the fat with some of the members. It was just a really lovely experience. And what I, the one thing that I remember about that more than anything else was the, the knowledge within even your junior team members who were, were serving. You know, there, there was a story with each wine. It was just really, really brilliant. So already you created an experience for somebody who who just you know literally dropped in. But the, the other thing that I remember about that was is that I think the perception of members clubs sometimes can be that they can be really cliquey. But in the time that I was at the bar, I literally had, I think, four of your members came up to me and they were like, are you okay? Do you need to know anything? You're a new face. We've not seen you before. And I just really, it just felt like a, a home from home. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, dare I say it, we have placed something quite special. And that part of that, uh, I don't want to make this sound wrong, but Grant and I have a very special relationship and it's a very humorous relationship. It's a very candid relationship. And, and we're very happy to display that to the, to the team. It goes back to what I said to the bellman at, at um, St. Martin's Lane and giving them permission. And, you know, at, at 16 Palm Al, the staff have got absolute permission and consent to be themselves and say what they think and do what they want. Uh, and that, that, that shows. And it also creates a happy atmosphere, um, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and so uh, and the, the, mem- the members love it. So, yeah, that, that's, that's quite special. And I think... You know, it would be so easy for a wine club to be pompous and, and have all of that associated with it, and, and we don't do that. And again, we've, we've learned with recruiting sommeliers and under other people, it's not always about the qualification. You know, so often it's yeah. just about what's the personality behind this character? You know, what, what, what makes them tick? And because that's the bit that is going to interface with a member asking for a glass of wine. Yes, they've got yeah. the knowledge and we can, we can teach them, but if they've got lots of knowledge but no character it's it's lost it's not it's, it's, yeah. it's not worth not worth doing absolutely well that comes back to the your point from your ian schrager days right i mean in terms of you you were recruiting for attitude as opposed to for specific qualifications yeah i mean you know about as i said our bellmen were artists you know they were actors they were dancers they were you know models they were all sorts of things now of course what i did learn is if everyone's like that, <laughs> then the, face, yeah. the thing does fall apart. So, so yeah, yeah. The, 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 the beauty of it is you have to have the infrastructure and structure of a, of a management team that is very strong to be able to support people to be able to, you know, have a little less knowledge. So, you, not everyone can be like that. I learned that we we had a, a few learnings at St Martin's Lane where we had people in some senior positions that were lovely people, but they just didn't understand the mechanics of, of running the business and the hospitality side. So. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a definitely a big, a big learn. Yeah. If, if you'll uh, permit me just to, to kind of quiz you just very quickly on kind of the differences, because you're obviously, you're now in Singapore. How has the, the way that they've handled the virus been in terms of where are you now with the business? You, you're back from being under lockdown. It's a bit of both, really. So lockdown started here on the 7th of April, so a little bit after uh, after London. Yeah. And it was lifted, uh, restaurants opened about two weeks ago. Uh, and you can have, I think, gatherings up to five people, you know, shops are open. I mean, to be quite honest, if I was to walk out of my apartment and go down onto Orchard Road, it, it's going to be packed. Um, so so right. 
And I and I've spoken to a few of the restaurateurs out here, and and you know they were so concerned that they they've seen their business bounce back quite quickly. You know, each government does things differently. So in the UK, you work with yeah. cinemas, but cinemas aren't, aren't open over here yet. You know, so so the the other thing when I I kind of briefly talked to you, we've got this you know massive track and trace thing. You, you can't go into a shop, a restaurant, the underground without scanning a QR code and, and telling the system that where you are. So that whenever you know a virus does break out here, they they know where you've been. They can they can lock it down very quickly. So that's that's yeah. I think that's probably a learning from previous viruses that they, they've had. I mean, interestingly, I think don't, these aren't exact numbers, but I think about twenty six people have have sadly passed away here in Singapore because of the virus. Right. It is highly likely there's another uh, virus out here. It's called dengue, which is a mosquito. Uh, virus which has been around for many many years more people will probably die from dengue than from the the COVID-19 it's kind right. of bizarre <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but what the world carries on and dengue is out there and 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 um and this year is particularly bad so yeah. um the government you know it, the government is is very dogmatic out here and people listen to the gov- government and I remember when lockdown first started you know there was this like the rest of the world a, a, a huge issue with toilet uh, tissue and people were overbuying yeah. it. And the government said stop, and, and people immediately stopped. You know, wow. And, 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 and so the people listen to the government out here. Uh, people are happy with the government out here. Um, yeah, the system works well. So I think that it's quite an obedient people out here. They kind of do what do what they're told. And also yeah. the legal system is pretty tough. You you don't want to break the law out here. They come down on you very hard. Um, yeah. And if you're on a, a work visa like myself, you just you just been told to leave the country. But those are the rules, and you play within the rules. You know, but I, I, uh, I suspect things are a little safer in, in Singapore than they are in, in, in the UK, has been my kind of, which is a complete turnaround because when the virus first started, it was first out in China and Asia, and everyone's phoning me up saying, Niels, you're okay out there. I really feel for you. You know, it's obviously a big issue. And suddenly the whole thing flipped when I was calling London saying, hey, guys, are you okay out there? You know, you seem to, you know, and so it completely flipped. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it, it accelerated at this this end very very quickly. Yeah, um, but I, I I think things. I'm a, by nature I'm an optimist, so I you know it's not going to be easy, and then some businesses are going to suffer. Of course, um, you know a lot of the businesses that are, are suffering were going to suffer anyway. Yeah, uh, and so I think it's just you know brought forward their end a little earlier than they anticipated. Um, yeah. But those people that run good businesses, I think, will survive, and I, I think things will pick up quite quickly i'm quite positive yeah I, I, well i think it, it all relies on consumer confidence at the end of the day doesn't it as soon as the, the consumers are confident to get back out and and i suppose get back to normal if that is such a thing then that's when businesses can get back to to doing what they do best no i i, I agree so um as the chancellor in the uk is, is encouraging everyone to spend money buy a house <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well he's uh we've got for those whenever we end up airing this it's currently the 7th of july we're i think a day away from a the summer it's not i suppose it's a summer statement he calls it i think it's not a budget per se but they're about to make some announcements that will hopefully impact consumer confidence and spending but um but we'll see we are um it's very fresh from being reopened here so there's a lot yet to kind of balance and figure out as to to what way it goes but uh, i'm like you I, i i side on the uh, or err on the side of positivity where possible just tempered with a little bit of 
reality without getting too excited. I think that's probably the the way to summarize that. Great. Well, have you got, I mean, that's a a long and illustrious career. You've worked with some fantastic brands uh, across your your time and, and, you know, within that, some amazing people as well. Have you... Have you got any examples of any uh, amusing stories that you could share with us? Um, I've got a couple. I, there's one question you were going to ask me about. Um, what's the worst thing that's happened to you? Yeah, well, that'll work <laughs> as well. I've got, a, I've got a good one. I've got a good one. So Go on. um, when, I was, when I was the front of house manager at uh, the Park Tower in, in Knightsbridge, I, I mean, I was very lucky, actually, because I was asked to, to really look after the sort of sales mission to uh, the Middle East, so every year I'd fly out to Qatar and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, all that world. And I'd meet all of our, our guests out there. So it was, it was sort of less of a sales trip. It was almost like a sort of social call going to visit them. But they, they, they truly appreciated it. But on, on one occasion I was, um, I was in, I think I was in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. And um, I left Jeddah for the weekend to go to uh, Abu Dhabi because you could have a gin and tonic in Abu Dhabi on the weekend. Um, right. And then I was due back in uh, Riyadh. So I flew to Riyadh on the Monday uh, after being in Abu Dhabi. And when I arrived at the airport, they asked me to go to a, 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 a small room and they took my passport and they threw it on the floor. And I thought, hmm, this is not, <laughs> this is not going well. Yeah. Uh, of course, of course we're, we're not talking mobile phones at this point in our lives or any of that sort of stuff. It's been quite a long time ago. And they kind of left me there for about a half an hour. And I was thinking, my gosh, what's happened? Have they someone put drugs in my bag? You know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, it then transpired that uh, my visa was incorrect. And the, the embassy had, in, had given me a single entry visa rather than a double entry visa. So because I'd been to Saudi Arabia on the Friday, uh, my visa didn't allow me to re-enter on the Monday. And they basically turned around to me and said, if you're not out of our country by midnight tonight, you're going to jail. Blame me. Thought okay, that's not good. Yeah, that, yeah. that's not good. So uh, um, and I, I they, they left me in like no man's land between getting off the plane and going through customs. They just left me there with no one to talk to. Um, so I, I managed to get some coins from some passengers arriving in Saudi Arabia. There was a there was a phone box there. Um, I got some coins. I thought you know okay, I've probably got a phone call here. Who's who do I make it to? So I'm not going to call my wife. She'll panic. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, called, I, called, I called the duty manager at the Park Tower Hotel. I remember her name, Debbie Green, who I've recently got back in, in touch with on social media. And she answered the phone. And I think she just thought I was just pulling her leg because I was a bit of a joke, jokester a lot of the time, you know, winding people up. So me kind of yeah. suddenly being on the phone saying I'm deporting me out of Saudi Arabia was probably a bit difficult to swallow. Uh, but it was true. And um, so I said, listen, you need to help me. And so she then contacted the British Airways desk, which was probably only about 100 yards away from our city, but I had no access to it. Who then basically, I arrived in, in Saudi Arabia about, I think, 10 o'clock in the morning. They got me on a plane to Abu Dhabi at 10 o'clock at night, two hours before midnight. And I, I, um, I what's that? What's that? Um, there's that horrible film about the Turkish uh, uh, jail. On oh, Turkey. Midnight, Express. midnight Express. I kept thinking that's probably the standard of accommodation. <laughs> so anyway, I got I got out. I got to Abu Dhabi, and um, I went to the Saudi embassy. I got my paperwork reprocessed, got an, a visa, and I returned back to Saudi three days later, and walked past the same people that had stopped me entering before, which 
I don't think I'd do that today. I'd probably just call it quits and go home. But when you're young and you're kind of, you know, on a journey, you kind of take those those risks. That's um, that's probably one of the toughest things that I've gone through. Yeah. Um, and then one of the funniest things that I've gone through is uh, a few Christmases ago, Grant, the founder of Six Seven Pound Mail, and myself at Christmas time, Grant dressed up as um, uh, Father Christmas, and I was the, the dutiful elf, uh, and we had good outfits on. Uh, and so we're dressed up, we're going around the club, we're talking to people, having a laugh with the, the, the team. And then we realized that we had some banking to do at NatWest Bank in, in Piccadilly. So the two of us uh, strolled up to the bank, went up to the bank uh, uh, till to go and uh, deal with some paintings and cash and stuff. And, and I, I, right then I thought that they, they thought they were about to be robbed by two, like, two <laughs> masked men. So uh, they they looked a little terrified, and then they kind of recognised who we who who we were. So that's one of my my amusing stories. That's brilliant. Yeah, I, I, whenever I air this, I usually ask people for a couple of photos to um to put out as part of the the promotion of the episode. I have so, a photograph um, of the Father Christmas. I'm requesting that one for sure. Okay, okay. I've got that. I've got that. But I, you know, I, the, 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 I think my my final word is that you know. It's an amazing industry. It's not without its bumps. So anyone coming into it needs to be ready for that. It's a business that you'll make friends for life on. Uh, and I'm in touch with people I've known, you know, all my career. Uh, and, um, you know, that's something, you know, quite special. I think the other thing I, I just touched on is this is a business where you meet so many people, so many people. And yeah. I, I've met thousands of well-known people. But, you know, what other industry could I have met? Neil Armstrong. And Muhammad Ali and Stephen Hawking, you know, wow. it's just, yeah. it's just, you know, and, and there are thousands more, but those are just some names who sadly passed away. So I felt I could mention them. So uh, interesting business. Good luck to all those who, who come and join us. We'll have fun. Yeah, well, I, I, you've summarized that beautifully because uh, that's one of the questions that I usually ask is what would you say to someone considering a career? But I think you've, um, you've just, you've answered that beautifully. Uh, in fact, Wonderful. So if people want to get in touch with you to learn a little bit more about you or 67 Pall Mall and, and where you're going, how what is the best way for them to do that? Probably just my, my email address, which is Niels, which is N-I-E-L-S at 67PallMall.com and, and I'll get straight back to them. Fantastic. Well, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you. That was a, a, a fascinating journey you've had and I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and I'll I'll send you on your merry way. Great, Phil. Appreciate it. Take care. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. All right. Ciao. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks, Neil. And there we have it. What an amazing career Niels has had so far and a superb concept he's working with. We wish him all the best with their expansion plans. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share where you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.